One of the most beloved and long-standing Christmas traditions observed by many is listening to George Friedrich Handel's oratorio, The Messiah. Perhaps this is a yearly tradition for some of you to find somewhere in the Twin Cities area, to find uh, a public venue in which this is still performed today. On March 23rd, 1743, this masterpiece, after nearly a year of being uh, published and being performed throughout Britain, uh, it was finally performed in London, England, and it was before King George II himself. And it is believed that as the music to the Hallelujah Chorus began to play in the concert hall, that King George himself stood to his feet out of reverence for what he was hearing and out of respect and just honor due to the sheer beauty of what was streaming through the halls that evening. The audience immediately followed the king's lead, and this accounts for why the tradition even continues to this day of the whole assembly standing when the Hallelujah Chorus is performed. And whether the king's motives were pure or not, we'll never know. But on this momentous occasion, one of the world's leading kings stood to his feet to honor such musical excellence that adorned the king of kings. Or as Psalm 24 puts it, the king of glory, the king of glory. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. The superscript that begins this psalm ascribes authorship to King David. Seventy-three psalms in the Psalter, just about half of the psalms, are ascribed to David. A large portion of them are contained within the first book of the psalms. The psalms are a collection of five books. So the first book is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. And many of these psalms are attributed to David. According to the Hebrew rendering of days, even this psalm in the Septuagint was to be read on the seventh day of the week. So consequently, Psalm 24 has historically been used regularly in the liturgy of the church on the Lord's Day. Psalm 24 is classified as an enthronement psalm because of its strong imagery of the king ascending and being rightly ushered into his holy place and seated upon his holy hill. I hope your hearts have already been encouraged and stirred this morning as we have sung so many of the themes that we're about to consider in Psalm 24. The psalm has an easy to discern pattern to it. There are three divisions. One, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 6, and lastly, verses 7 through 10. What I'd like us to see this morning is in this first opening stanza, verses 1 and 2, that we would behold the sovereign creator. The psalm begins this way, that we would behold our sovereign creator. And in verses 3 through 6, that we would approach the holy Savior. Specifically says the God of our salvation. That we would approach the holy Savior. And in verses 7 through 10, that we would prepare ourselves or we would welcome the glorious King. We would behold the sovereign creator, approach the holy Savior, and welcome the glorious King. Before we go any further, would you just pray with me once again? Father, exalt yourself. We don't pray enough. We don't seek your face as we ought. 
We need truth. Lord, glorify yourself in this text. Even use it to convert a soul this morning. Help the gospel according to Psalm 24 to be evident and to be clear that the message of the gospel, the message of your love for a broken humanity would be in full display. In Christ's name, amen. Let us first behold our sovereign creator, God. We read in verses 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So immediately it's made clear that the entirety of the earth, every bit of it, is owned by someone. It belongs to someone, namely Yahweh, the God of Israel. The Hebrew text boldly begins, very literally, it just says, To Yahweh, the earth and its fullness. To Yahweh. The earth and everything it contains. It is as if the Lord alone owns the deed to the land. Therefore, all that the land possesses is rightfully his. The world and those who dwell therein. There's not a single soul in this entire globe that is exempt from this. They are owned by God. Like a potter who has full ownership to do with the clay as he desires, The Lord owns the earth and all its subjects. He owns it all. As one man puts it, humans are but tenants at will, occupying rented space that does not belong to them. The earth and everything in it is the sole possession of Yahweh. It matters not that the majority of earth's tenants do not even know who their landlord is. His ownership is fixed. Because he is supreme. Furthermore, verse 2 provides the underlying reason for Yahweh's ownership of the earth. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. We're reminded of the creation narrative here in Genesis chapter 1. When the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. And on the third day in Genesis 1 verse 9, the Lord said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And perhaps the watery image evoked a sense of fear and uncertainty in the ancient Hebrew mindset. God's people, Israel, were never a particularly seafaring people. So perhaps the Lord is viewed here as the one who hovered over the chaotic waters and brought something stable, something firm forth from these miry depths. Whatever the case may be, Yahweh rightfully owns the world by virtue of his creative work. It belongs to him. Every inch of this universe, as we just sang, belongs to you, O God. Now, most Liberal scholars would read this psalm and they would find little to no connection between each of these three sections that we just discussed. They assume that these are just a random miscellaneous snippets that over time were were in a hodgepodge sort of way, just thrown together. But this approach does not seem to resonate for reasons we'll soon discuss, but it's clear. What is clear is that David's opening call to worship in this psalm assumes that the worshiper understands something. 
He understands something about the majesty of God in the earth. That God reigns supremely over all things. What a comfort. Several years ago, I I picked up a book while at Barnes & Noble entitled The Narcissism Epidemic. Narcissism is, of course, an overinflated view or love for oneself taken from the, the Greek god Narcissus who saw himself in that pool of water and eventually ended up drowning because he loved it so much and ended up taking his life. Narcissism is this inflated love for oneself. And although written this book, written by secular scholars and writers, uh, their observations were fascinating with how on target they were. The introduction of this book uh, reads as follows. Let me read you a portion. Narcissism is everywhere in American culture. On a reality TV show, a girl planning her 16th birthday party wants a major road blocked off so a marching band can precede her grand entrance on a red carpet. A book called My Beautiful Mommy explains plastic surgery to young children whose mothers are going under the knife for a trendy mommy makeover. It is now possible to hire fake paparazzi to follow you around, snapping your photograph when you go out at night. And, to make it better, you can even take home a fake celebrity magazine cover featuring your photographs. A popular song declares, with no apparent sarcasm, I believe the world should revolve around me. People buy expensive homes with loans far beyond their ability to pay. They continually hone their Facebook and Twitter skills in order to better market their public self-brand. High school students pummel classmates and then seek attention for their violence by posting videos to social media. Ads for financial services proclaim that retirement helps you return to childhood and pursue your dreams. And on and on and on it goes, right? Perhaps more than in any era of human history, we start and end our days with minds fixed on this self-deceived notion that we are at the center of our world. Unwittingly, we just breathe in lies of entitlement, and we gradually forget that we are the sole possession of the God of heaven. We belong entirely to Him. We exist to do His bidding. And so it makes perfect sense why King David would begin where he does. Perhaps more for us than in any other generation that has ever existed. True worship begins by beholding the majesty and splendor of God. This is where worship begins. So it's fitting that this psalm takes us straight to the foundation for why God rules supremely. As A.W. Tozer so famously wrote on page one of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our view of God is of utmost importance if we have any hope of rightly worshiping him. And after beholding the majesty of our creator, we are called to approach the holy savior, the God of our salvation David immediately uh, brings us to consider a most critical question in verse 3. 
Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Now, at some level, this is a fundamental question that every person must wrestle with. In light of God's transcendent sovereignty as creator and sustainer of all things, what qualifies someone to stand before his sacred presence? The backdrop to this psalm is unknown, but it's very likely that David has in mind the Ark of the Covenants return to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5 and 6. If you recall, the Philistines had captured the Ark for some time, but had since returned it because of its evident curse that it had become to them. In 2 Samuel 6, we read this. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So if you allow your mind's eye to picture what's going on here, great celebration is happening. The ark, which represented the very blessing and presence of of God, was returning. And they were taking it up to the hill of the Lord. We'll draw upon that image as the psalm goes on. Verse 4 reads, and it answers, answers this question. Who is qualified to share fellowship with such an awesome king? And, and we have to remember the hill of the Lord here refers to Mount Zion in, in Jerusalem, the hill where the temple of God would eventually be erected. But of course, it was no small matter to come before the Lord. It's not a small thing. For the sovereign creator to have an audience with mere mortals, mere sinful mortals like you and like me. So who is qualified to share fellowship with such a king? Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So the answer that comes is both external and internal. We see first here clean hands. Most likely this term clean carries the idea of innocence. It's frequently coupled with the Hebrew word for blood. So clean hands would refer to palms that are free of the blood of innocent victims. This was an outward measure of character and righteousness. But the focus doesn't stay on just the outside behavior we see and a pure heart. So the spotlight now moves to the inward nature of a person, a criterion that our fellow man cannot ultimately discern. Right. A pure heart is the integrity of life with which a person characteristically relies upon the Lord with a heart attitude that loves the law of the Lord. Now. Some yellow flags might be going off in your mind right now. Perhaps some of you might be thinking, a pure heart? No, not, that's not me. I know my heart. I have impure thoughts every day. 
I'm covetous, I'm unforgiving, I'm proud, I'm lustful, I'm greedy, I'm selfish, and that's just to name a few. Well, the intent of this psalm was never to create within an Israelite a competitive impulse to morally strive and strive and strive until the day where he feels himself worthy to stand independent of God's grace. No, we read it all wrong if we're trying to look at it in that way. Rather, we must understand that cleansed hands and pure hearts is a common expression throughout Scripture that refers to integrity in all of life, whereby the law of the Lord is treasured and one's behavior bears out that claim. It accords with it. We're reminded of the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. They see Him. They receive an audience before this King. Jesus' brother James writes in James 4.8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And He will exalt you. Cleansed hands and pure hearts. Prerequisites to have an audience before this King. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because because we shall see Him as He is And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. We are God's children. And when we understand that, we purify ourselves because he is pure. We understand this covenant relationship is there. And it does not lead us to just a a laissez-faire approach to life. It leads us to purify ourselves because we have our eyes fixed on the king. We know who He is. We agree with Him about His status. And it humbles us. Causes us to want to be free of the the entanglements and the, the ongoing battle that we all face. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 implores us to strive for peace with everyone. And for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Have that audience before His holy presence. So the simple fact is this. Those who will see God one day, those who will stand in His holy place, granted in His holy presence, they pursue gospel-enabled purity in all corners of their lives. For as this same writer, King David, would later testify in Psalm 51, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not reject. You will not despise. The verse goes on, verse 4 here, in Psalm 24. He does not lift up his soul to what is false. He doesn't lift up. So literally, he has not raised up his being, his, his self, to emptiness or vanity or the same word, idols. He doesn't lift up his soul 
doesn't seek to serve God and money, as Jesus would say, or seek to serve two masters. He has a love and a fidelity of heart. The compass with which he's pointed his life is set. It's clear. Not that he never stumbles, but the trajectory is set. The one given an audience before the creator is not the kind of person whose life is dominated by devotion to empty, vain idols. Idol worship was, of course, a chronic problem for the people of God. And God consequently judged them accordingly time and time again by withdrawing his sacred presence. Idol worship and fellowship with God are polar opposites. The verse continues, and does not swear deceitfully. So we move back towards not only inward purity, but now external again. He does not swear in a deceitful manner. The one who stands in his holy place loves his neighbor as himself by speaking truth instead of deceit. So verse 5 now tells of the reward for such a person. We see in verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This individual receives God's personal divine blessing accompanied by the pronouncement of righteousness. This idea of a vindication of innocence. There's a pronouncement of it from none other than the God who is his salvation. Amazing. So by this point, there can be no doubt in our minds that as one author writes, the fact that this permission comes from God, his savior, emphasizes that righteousness is granted by God, not earned by faultless compliance with external law. It is always a gift of wrought by mercy alone to stand before this kind of king. Verse 6 reads, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The gift of blessing and righteousness is open to all who would seek the face of God. The second section ends here with the first of two selahs. You might see that in your text. Encouraging us to reflect upon the nature of what has just been set forth. It's important for us to remember that for any Israelite who approached God's holy hill in worship, a sacrifice would have always accompanied them. The law of God required the shedding of blood for the removal of guilt. A lamb would have been sacrificed by the priest every morning and every evening. So blood was always being shed so that God's people might have access to it. Our worship today is really no different. Our coming before the sovereign creator God is only possible as we humbly cleanse our hands and purify our hearts through the atoning blood of the sinless Lamb of God. Our Savior has climbed Calvary's hill for us. He has conquered death's sting, and he has purified a people for himself, who now, as Titus, it writes in in Titus 2, are zealous for good works. We are purified so we might love the law of the Lord.
we might love doing it with all of our hearts. This psalm climaxes into the third and final stanza in which the entire city of Zion is called upon to welcome this glorious king. We read in verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Well, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The theme is abundantly clear, is it not? Make way, prepare for this kind of king. A glorious king. A king who lacks not a shred of glory. All majestic weightiness belongs to him. And he's coming near. He's actually at the gates. It is as if the triumphant procession has reached the very gates of the city. With Yahweh moving ever closer to taking his rightful spot on Zion's hill. And to lift up one's head, as it repeatedly says here, is a sign of joyful anticipation and hope. Lift up your heads. We see it's the contrast of, of, of what the one who is granted presence before the Lord does not do. He does not lift up his soul to what is false. He lifts up his head to the king of glory. In joyful anticipation. So here the call is made for the city gates to lift up their heads. So they're, they're being personified here. And metaphorically, uh, they're called to joyfully receive this king of glory. In keeping with the antiphonal question and answer sort of nature of this psalm. The question is asked in verse 8. Who is this king of glory? Verse 9 replies in military language. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. This is language that was first used in Exodus chapter 15. Right after God miraculously delivered his people in the most unthinkable, unspeakable way. By parting the waters, delivering them. A couple million of them. Unbelievable. And he he, he was... First referred to as the mighty warrior who conquers all of Egypt's armies. Yahweh approaches now the city as a military victor, returning in triumphant procession. So it's for added emphasis that the the psalm repeats itself in verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So these are not. Actual questions, wondering about the identity of this this person who is at the gates. It is simply for us to drag out the procession so it might be clear to every listener who this is. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the God of armies, our warrior king who never lacks in glory. He is here. He is ascending his holy hill. To be sure, if the gates are told to render praise, how much more ought the subjects of the king to render joyful praise to God? 
This is no casual entrance in which the entourage saunters in. No. All must prepare themselves, ready themselves for the glorious entry of this King of glory. So in both our Savior, Jesus Christ's triumphal entry in Matthew 21, and particularly in his ascension, he, he himself provides ultimate fulfillment of this psalm on our behalf. He is our glorious King who has ascended Zion's throne. And consequently, as the writer of Hebrews makes it clear, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So when we consider this psalm as a whole, we must ask ourselves a number of questions. Do I live... Do you live with a conscious awareness of who exactly it is that we're worshiping here on a routine, weekly basis? Do we understand the nature and the character, the holiness of this kind of a God? Do I fail to elevate the joy I find in regular, weekly corporate worship beyond whether or not my preferences were met that morning? Whether or not the musical selections were my favorite, whether or not the style of preaching was exactly what I prefer, do I ever give myself to thoughtful, intentional, spiritual preparation before coming together as God's people? Perhaps, and especially, before observing the Lord's table together? Charles Spurgeon once wrote, there should be some preparation of the heart in coming to the worship of God. Consider who he is and whose name we gather, and surely we cannot rush together without thought. Consider whom we profess to worship, and we shall not hurry into his presence as men run to a fire. Or if I... If I say I tip my hat in agreement that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, why am I strapped with such anxiety and fear about the way I handle my finances? Do I read the news with a steadied conviction that although portions of this globe and even portions of this country seem in utter chaos sometimes, every inch of this universe belongs to you, O God. Every microbe of the earth belongs to Yahweh, and he is governing it according to his will. This is simply the facts. Has my understanding of Christ's substitutionary work on my behalf somehow short-circuited, such that instead of creating a hunger for holiness, now there exists a lackadaisical spiritual apathy for the things of the Lord? Has that happened in in your life? Have I cornered God into a single role? I've assigned him a job, one job, forgiver. And he shows up in my life whenever I need to simply say, God, do your job. It's time for you to forgive me. I'm going to live the rest of my life on my own terms and then sort of forget you. Whenever I need to, you know, get my conscience cleared up a little bit, you're only that. 
such that I don't take into account that He is the sovereign Creator. He is the holy God of our salvation. He is the King of glory. That sort of King demands a response, deserves a response. He is far more than that, though He is that. And if He's not that, we're in big trouble, right? Oh, He is. But let's not tell God it's His job to do that and to stay in that marginal area of our lives. It's never His job to forgive us. It's always His grace. Or perhaps you would not call yourself a Christian this morning, but somehow you've, you've wound up here and you've followed a friend or you've, you saw a sign and you've thought, I, I wonder if I'll go this morning and hear what this place is all about. Perhaps you're not a member of God's royal family and coming before his presence, which we will do, is not something that brings a particular delight to your soul. It actually sort of makes you filled with fear and shame. Well, I have good news for you. This psalm is about good news. Actually, the, the bookmarks of this psalm, we could, we could tell the gospel by them. There is a creator God who has created you for his glory. And he is willing to bless you with righteousness, to vindicate you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Repent of your sins. Turn to him so you can know the joy. If gates can have great joy of singing the praise of the king of glory, how much more is the joy that we made in his image can have? Would you do this? Perhaps even today. Repent of your sins. Allow the king of glory to come in. His holy hill calls to you. As we have observed at the beginning of Psalm 24, biblical worship of God must always begin with a right view of who he is. If we don't get anything else this morning, we, we need an enlarged view of God. It is so, so easy to shrink him down to the size we prefer him to be, to, to work him into our schedules, to let him be just an ancillary add-on that sort of accompanies what we're already about instead of setting him in his rightful place. And no matter our age today, this is our call. Live as joyful subjects of the glorious king.